Good morning, church. What a joy to be together today, amen. We are finishing out our series in the book of Ruth today. Well, for that, I, I, I hope you have been as blessed by this, this time studying Ruth's story as I have. Um, I would uh, encourage you, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn over to Ruth chapter 4. I mean, Ruth 4 today. If you don't have a Bible or didn't, don't have one with you, uh, you know, we're really passionate about access to God's Word here to me. And we have house Bibles around the room. You're welcome to grab one. In fact, if you don't own one, I would encourage you to take one of those home. Or talk to one of our pastors. We'd love to get you one that's nicer. Before we jump into Ruth, I, do, I need to tell us a couple things and then get us caught up. So the first one is this. Um, man, hopefully, if you're in this space, you got to hang out with us uh, Friday night at a revived prayer and worship night. That was such a refreshing time. If you missed out on that, I'm not supposed to say this as your pastor, but man, you missed out on that. Uh, dang. Dang, you missed out. I feel bad for you. Uh, but it's good. It's good because we will do this kind of thing again in the future. But man, what a refreshing, wonderful time coming together in song and prayer, just being led by the Spirit in this space. Uh, and by the way, real quick shout out to all the people in lo- who love and serve our church. A bunch of them who spent time learning, what was it, like 30 or 40 songs for Friday's Revive Night showed up again and served us like two seconds ago during our worship time here. So uh, thank you to our creative team and tech team. Man, you guys are great. Seriously, thank you for loving and serving us so well. Um, Second thing is this. You're going to get an email about this this week, but um, we have kind of tallied all the data on the two gathering thing and moving to two services. And so we are going to move that direction. At this point, we're late enough in the game that we are going to wait to the other side of the holidays. But we'll, uh, in January, launch into that. I'll send an email out uh, this week to give you guys information on that. But we're going to move that direction, uh, and we'll spend some time as a church kind of preparing for that, talking through the vision and purpose of what what our church is trying to do in our community, why that helps that. Um, but we're going to wait for the other side of Christmas to get there. So we're, we are what we are for, for, for another month or so at least. Um, okay, with that being said, Ruth chapter 4 today, we're finishing out this story. Uh, if you haven't been with us these last few weeks, to, to kind of catch us up to where we're at, the book of Ruth tells the story of these, these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, who are mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, and for a variety of reasons, they have found themselves in Bethlehem as widows in a very desperate space, literally, uh, literally in a place of facing starvation, Right? And the godly Moabite widow Ruth works her tail off to love and serve and provide for her family. God uh, faithfully shows up in her life, provides for her, works through circumstances, connects her to this godly man named Boaz uh, who helps provide for her and her family. The whole story at that point kind of has taken place around, centered around the barley harvest and, and Ruth's ability to go and glean in Boaz's field and provide food for her family in the midst of that. But the story gets to this point where the barley harvest is over. And, and something we've learned about Boaz up to this point in the story is that he's what is known as a redeemer. He has the ability to actually kind of fix Naomi and Ruth's situation by marrying into the family and provi- giving provision for them, giving safety, allowing their family name to continue, all these different things. But they get to the end of the barley harvest, and even though Boaz is a godly man, and even though he's provided for Ruth and Naomi, he has not taken that step of offering up redemption for them. 
And so it culminates in this nighttime scene with this, this mixture of scheming motives and godly motives between Naomi and Ruth. But it culminates in the middle of the night with Ruth sitting with Boaz after he's threshed the wheat on the threshing floor. She wakes him up and he basically says, what the heck is going on? And she says, you are my redeemer. Redeem me. I need your help. It's where, it's where the story has kind of brought us up to this point of this, this really intense moment of Ruth being bold and walking in faith and saying, you can help my family. You can do this. Please do it. And Boaz's response is, you're right, I can. But there's someone else in front of me in line. So I'm going to get this fixed for you. I'm going to go figure this out. If they will do it, awesome. But if they won't, I will. I will redeem you and your family. And there's a lot more packed into that. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the, the first three sermons we spent time in. And Ruth, if you've missed them. But, but to get us to the to a point where we are this morning, we need to understand that scene. That they have they've pushed to this point. Ruth has has boldly reached out to Boaz. She hasn't waited for him to propose marriage. or to, so She has sought him out and said, I need you to do this for me. I need this. And he said, okay. And the scene ends with her going home, relating everything back to Naomi. And Naomi says, don't you worry. He will see this thing out by the end of the day today. He actually says, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go. He won't rest until he resolves this today. That's where our text picks up today. The story is going to resolve. We're going to see the ending of Ruth. We're going to see how God works, spoiler alert, how God works miraculously to provide for both Ruth and Naomi. It's this beautiful kind of tying up this story and the way things come together and care and love and beauty. Like it's, just, it's just a textbook perfect ending. But what's so amazing about the way the Ruth ends and what I think is actually going to be what God has for us today is that Ruth doesn't end with Ruth. See, Boaz's faithfulness and Boaz's obedience, as we're going to see, ends up blessing Ruth, yes. But it also ends up bringing about redemption and blessing and healing for Naomi. But it doesn't just end with Naomi. It also ends up bringing about blessing and care and God's provision for the whole nation of Israel. But it doesn't just end with the nation of Israel. As Christians, we actually know when we look at the ending of Ruth that God uses this to bring about blessing for literally all people through the man Jesus. It's insane how God's blessing spirals out, how it doesn't terminate on us as individuals, how the God of the universe can see us, each and every one of us, in our own individuality, can see us in our failure, can see us in our weakness, can be so for us, right? The way the God of the universe can be all in on us as sinful individuals, and yet in his sovereignty can work through each and every one of our circumstances to bring about his larger good, his larger work, his larger kingdom for all of reality. It's almost as if the work Christ does in you, like as he pours that into you, it pours out of you into the world around you. That's a, that's a good phrase. We should, we should use that for something. <laughs> so anyway, pray with me, and we will jump into this text. We're going to do what we've been doing, kind of go through it verse by verse together. So pray with me, and we'll jump into this. Jesus, we ask this morning that you would just be our interpreter. Be our teacher, Jesus. Be 
Be our shepherd and our discipler today, God. We ask that as we take a few minutes to dig into your word, that you would be the one who meets us in it, that you would speak clearly, that you would remind us of things we've forgotten, that you would encourage us in areas of our life where we are slackening, Lord, that you would teach us new truths about your heart for us in the world. But all of it, God, and in all these things, we just pray that we would meet with you today in the way our hearts actually need, that we would leave this space today more connected with you, more in love with you than we walked in. God, we know that you're faithful to accomplish this. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, I already read it, but I'm going to reread the closing verse of chapter 3 to kind of set up where we're at and what we're doing today. 318, Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he, he being Boaz, won't rest until he resolves this today. Naomi's closing words to Ruth in the closing of the previous scene from last week's text, but they set us up for today. Boaz is set on this work of redeeming Ruth and Naomi, and he's going to resolve this thing one way or the other today. You can imagine like almost the movie cut, right? As the scene fades from the middle of the night and secret meetings to the next day, the sun is up, it's bright, and Boaz is headed for the city gates. Starting in chapter four, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. So Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. Boaz opens our story by heading to the city gate. And just to give us like a little bit of kind of the historical picture here, right? Like this scene is about the literal gate to the city of Bethlehem, right? Like the walled defenses around the city. There's gates to go in and out. Probably one major gate for a city as small as Bethlehem. This is where the legal happenings of the community would happen. In these, in these city gates, they would purposefully set up courtyards with benches and tables because in a pre-electricity, pre-internet, pre-digital communication era, one of the quickest and most efficient ways to get people together for legal transactions was to have them at the gate because everyone had to pass them out of the gate to go to work. So you're actually able to grab people and get stuff done. So Boaz gets up early and heads to the gate and sits down and waits till the name, that named family member, that other potential redeemer walks by. Now really quick, this actually has no real import for our sermon other than just it's funny. I want to share it with you. We, we don't get this in most of the English translations because it's such a weird phrase and theologians debate over it even though it doesn't mean anything for the text. But Boaz actually says when the guy walks up, he says, hey, so-and-so, get over here. And there's something really funny about that to me. Like the actual literal translation of the Hebrew phrase is so and so, mister. And just the, the idea that Boaz looks at this guy and is like, he's one of my cousins. I can't remember which. Get over it. Something about that is just very, very humorous to me. But he calls Mr. So-and-so to come sit down at the gate. And by the way, we're going to talk about this a little bit. But this guy remains unnamed 
throughout the entirety of the text. And there's actually purpose in that. There's no real reason not to name this guy except that this is another example of the author of Ruth using the way he recounts. Right? Remember, he's giving us a historical tale. But the way he recounts the tale, the details, the order, all those different things is kind of how he introduces some of the drama and some of the themes into the text. And by choosing purposefully to leave this poor relative as Mr. So-and-so, he actually brings out some of the theological meat of Ruth. So we're going to come back to that idea that this poor guy remains unnamed. But Boaz sees him wandering out. He calls him over, tells him to sit. And then he gathers up 10 of the city's elders. And this is basically him getting together a minimum quorum of the legal authorities in their village so that they can conduct business. Everyone around would have realized, ah, Boaz needs to do something that needs to be official. This, need, this is a business transaction. This is something that is important. He's brought this guy. He's got the elders present, and they need to make an official decision about something. Moving on to verse 3. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling a portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, then do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answered. So Boaz sets up the situation for this relative. Now, by the way, it is actually important to note here that this guy almost certainly actually knew the situation, right? Remember when, when, when Naomi returns to town, it kind of is the town buzz for a while. So the idea that this guy has been able to go three months not realizing that he's related to Naomi and is able to redeem her is, is kind of ludicrous. He probably knows. But Boaz still sets up the situation. And by, by the way, like th- this part is actually really important. You have to remember, this whole interaction today, we've, we've talked about this a couple times in the previous weeks, but I want to reiterate this. This entire interaction here is centered around one really specific and important ancient Hebrew principle, and then two specific Mosaic laws that are connected to that larger principle. And the principle is this. The ancient Israelites, God's people, under the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant given by God at Mount Sinai, right? A big part of the way they understood and experienced their relationship to God was through the physical manifestation of the promised land. If you go back and read the end of Joshua, God speaks and directly portions specific chunks of land with specific property lines to specific families in perpetuity, saying, this is how I provide for you. You live in covenant with me. You honor me. You do the laws, follow the law, and I give you this, this address, this chunk of land for you and your descendants forever and ever and ever, and I will make that land fertile, and I will provide food for you, and it will be a direct physical manifestation of my kindness and my covenant love to you. It's really important to understand that piece of the ancient Jewish identity to get what's happening in this text. They're really caught up in not just the land, but the connection of the specific piece of land to a specific family, which leaves you with a major problem. What happens if a family loses the land? 
Whether, whether they become financially destitute and they're forced to sell the land. Or whether or not someone tragically dies or there are no male heirs. What do you do if God's connection to you is manifested through your family's ownership of a chunk of land and your family doesn't own that land anymore, right? So God put two laws in place in the Mosaic law to help engage this principle and solve this practical problem. One is called the kinsman redeemer and one is called Leverite marriage. And we see both of them working out in the book of Ruth. The idea of the kinsman redeemer is this. If a family becomes destitute and for whatever reason has to sell their chunk of the promised land, if their choice is starve to death or sell the land, God says, go ahead and sell the land. But one of your family members who is financially stable is morally obligated to be the one to buy it from you. If they are at all able, they should buy it and keep it and tend it and they can bear the fruit from its harvests. But as soon as you are back on your feet and able to buy it back, they will sell it back to you with no interest. And by the way, if you hit the year of Jubilee at somewhere in there, it just goes back to you. This was built into the law. If you have a family member who's able to buy your land, they're obligated. They they need to do it. Not required by the law, but ethically the, the weight is on them if they're able to make that sacrifice to do it. So Boaz looks at this guy and says, hey, you know about Naomi? She's poor. Anything going on? They're selling off their land. You're first in line to redeem it, dude. Do you want it? Because if you don't, I need to know because I'm going to redeem it otherwise. And this guy says, yeah, I'll do it. Now, it's easy to go, wow, look at all the godliness in Bethlehem. Look at all these people who care about Ruth and Naomi. But there's something really important to note here. This is a very easy yes for this guy. Here's why this is an easy yes for this guy. Naomi is a widow with no male heir, which means there's no way for her to raise up enough money to buy her land back, period. And there's no one for the land to revert back to in the year of Jubilee. If this guy buys up the land, he's just buying it. He's just getting to add to his inheritance in the promised land. He's just getting to bless his children in perpetuity through part of God's blessing issued to Elimelech in his line. This is a sweet deal for this guy. He can buy the land as a kinsman redeemer and come across socially and publicly as a good godly guy, but because there's no one to buy it back or claim it, he's just making his state better and greater. This is kind of eh. But what Boaz reminds us of is that this is not the only at law in play around this principle. There's also this idea of Leverite marriage here. Verse 5, then Boaz says, Now on the day that you buy the field from Naomi, you will also require, acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Boaz drops the bomb here. The land is not the only thing at play here, Mr. So-and-so. There is also the widow Ruth. Now, the idea of Leverite marriage was that if a family died with no male heir, a close living relative was ethically, morally obligated to bear a son with the widow so that the family name could continue. So that 
the land, the blessing of the promised land, could continue. The continuation of the family name is very important to the understanding of the covenant. So Boaz says, yeah, yeah, cool, awesome, awesome. I'm glad you want to redeem it. Anyway, don't forget, there actually is a living widow who can still bear a son. Her name's Ruth. She's a Moabitess, a non, a non-Jew. You'd have to marry her and bear a son and give the land to him when he turns 18. You know, that part. And instantly, right, all of a sudden, this goes from being an easy deal to a major commitment. And by the way, a costly commitment. Because now the shift has moved from, well, I just got to buy this land, help out this old widow, and then my family in perpetuity gets double the land, awesome, to I have to buy this land and care for it and keep it healthy and take care of it and also marry a non-Jew and bear some of the social scorn that goes with that and, and figure out how to bear a son. And then when he turns 15, 16, I can't remember what the age is, whenever he turns that age, he just gets it for free. And I get all the fruit I bore from it for that 10 or 15 years, but my kids don't get any benefit from that. We're going to spend our blood, sweat, and tears, and money caring for that land, and then it's just going to go away, right? All of a sudden, it becomes a really noble, beautiful thing, but a really difficult and sacrificial thing. turns into a major commitment. In verse 6, the Redeemer replied, then I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Basically saying, I don't have the resources to risk that and commit to that. That's too, that's too much for me. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. Now, in an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the Redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Melhan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Melhan's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear from among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. All the people who are at the city gates, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering in your house like Rachel and like Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in a patheron. May your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamor, born of Judah, because of the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. And now we finally see why Mr. So-and-so remains unnamed in this story and unnamed in history. He's being asked to make a major personal and family sacrifice to help another family name continue. And he's just not willing or able to do it, right? We don't know the heart motive. Like we don't know if he was financially barely holding on, just couldn't do it. But for whatever the reason, whatever the reason, he just couldn't do it. It makes financial sense. He'd be taking on financial responsibility for land that he wouldn't ultimately, ultimately bear the benefit of, right? It was probably in a lot of ways financially smart for him to back off and consider his own family, blood family first. 
But he makes this choice to care for himself and not the other, and then he slips into biblical and historical obscurity. His name isn't remembered. Now, Boaz, on the other hand, we're still talking about him literally right now, right? Like, Boaz says yes to the need that's in front of him. He says yes to the risk that's in front of him. He says yes to the sacrifice that will cause him. And he doesn't just say yes. He wants his yes to be a legal matter of public record. He's saying yes to God. He's saying yes to Ruth. He's saying yes to Naomi. He wants everyone in their community to know, I am all in on this. I will marry Ruth. I will buy up the land. I'll raise up the son. I will pass on the land to him when he's able. He's all in for helping God's people stay connected to their covenant. Such a beautiful thing. And look how the elders and the people respond to this act of faithful love. They pour out blessing on both Boaz and Ruth, right? May Ruth be like Rachel and Leah, the very mothers of Israel. What a blessing. They're joyfully including Ruth, the Moabitess, in their reckoning of God's covenant people. And they bless Boaz, saying, may may this financial, essentially what they're saying is, may this financial sacrifice you're making, may this have no effect on your finances. Which is a really kind blessing to speak over him, right? What a specific and nice thing to say. And they end with this reference to Perez, the son of Tamar. This is Boaz's own ancestor, one of the uh, beginnings of the tribe of Judah. And again, by the way, is a reference to God's including of a Gentile woman into his covenant promise. Well, we're not going to go back and look at the whole story, but Tamar was a young widow who had married Judah's oldest son. And when Judah's oldest son died, she married the second son out of Leverite marriage. And then he died. And then when the third son came along, Judah said, I think this lady kills husbands. And so she hid her son away, or he hid her son away and refused to let Tamar marry him. And so Tamar deceived him, pretended to be a prostitute and was with Judah and bore a son named Perez. <laughs> Pretty wild story. And yet, God used that to continue the tribe of Judah. God used that. He drew her in and included her in the covenant. And once again, Tamar is one of the mothers of Jesus himself, included by name in his genealogy, right? Anyway, look where it goes from here. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife. He slept with her. And the Lord granted conception to her. And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in all Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you even in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you is better than seven sons. Naomi took the child and placed him on her lap and became a mother to him. And the neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abimnadad. Abimnadad fathered Nishon. Nishon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And this is the happily ever after to this story how it lands. It carries what would have been, by the way, an absolute mic drop 
to the ancient readers. Boaz keeps his word and he marries Ruth. And the next words of the text are really specific that God intervenes supernaturally to make sure that Ruth conceives and bears a son. And the book kind of comes together with this picture of Ruth setting the son on Naomi's lap, the son who will continue the family name, and the women of the village, the same women who just a couple chapters before were sitting with Naomi when she goes, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has made me bitter and he has afflicted me. I left full and I came back empty. The same women sit with Naomi with her grandson on her lap. And these same women speak blessing and prayer over her. Look what God has done for you, Naomi. Look at his faithfulness to you. Look how he has served you and loved you through your daughter-in-law and through your redeemer. Look what God has done. Mm. I think it's actually really interesting, by the way, this story doesn't really end with Ruth. Do you notice that? Like it's Ruth's book. And the closing scene, Ruth just kind of like fades into the background for that last little bit. The main thrust of the story has been about Ruth pretty much the whole time, right? Her character, her faith, her boldness have been highlighted for most of the book. But the reality is, the book of Ruth is not actually, I mean, it's about Ruth, but it's not actually about Ruth. This is a strange way to think about it, but, but follow me mentally with this for a second. Ruth, if we're being honest, isn't a terribly dynamic character in terms of how stories go, right? When we meet Ruth at the beginning of the story, she is a strong, faithful, loving, loyal woman. At the end of the story, when we leave Ruth, she is a strong, faithful, loving, loyal woman, right? Ruth is actually a pretty static character in terms of how we experience her. But Naomi... Naomi experiences real growth in this story. We're introduced to Naomi as the obedient wife who left the promised land with her husband. By the end of chapter 1, she is the widowed, bitter, angry with God, seemingly too depressed to even care for her own needs, right? And yet she ends the story with the physical manifestation of God's provision for her and her future sitting on her lap. She's no longer Mara. The bitter. She's Naomi again. Pleasant. Content. But by the way, the story doesn't even end with Naomi's redemption arc as much as that is a really good redemption arc. And interesting, as interesting as Naomi is, the book of Ruth isn't about Naomi either. The author takes it a step further and lets us into the larger work that God is doing through this story. The author drops this major bomb and lets us know that Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. That God used this tragedy in this young woman and this godly man's faithfulness to not just bless their own family, to not just meet their needs in the moment, but to bless all of Israel. And so in a lot of ways, the book of Ruth isn't just about Ruth. It isn't just about Naomi. It's about God's covenant love for his people, Israel. 
And we as followers of Jesus know, in fact, in just a couple weeks to open our Advent series, Pastor Jesse is going to take us through Jesus' genealogy. We know if we pay close attention to that text, that this story isn't even just about the nation of Israel, but that Ruth herself is one of the mothers of Christ. That this family line, that God's provision and blessing for this family in this moment doesn't just care for Ruth, doesn't just care for Naomi, doesn't just care for Israel, but through that line of Judah, we get to Jesus, the Savior of the world, through whom all of reality is blessed. And what a spiraling out of God's goodness, God's covenant, faithful love for his creation. I mean, man, our God is good, amen? Amen. What we see is that the book of Ruth ultimately is actually just about God. It's about how good he is. It's about how faithful he is. Even when life is terribly painful. Even when tragedy finds us and there's seemingly no explanation and there's seemingly no silver lining. Can you imagine sitting with Naomi and Ruth in Moab? over the graves of their family. And being like, I don't know, I mean, God works in mysterious ways, you know? Works all things for good. Anyway, I'll see you back at Bethlehem. No. What pain, what tragedy these women went through. And yet we see in this book that God's covenant faithfulness is not overpowered by the reality of the curse. The curse is real. Terrible stuff happens. Terrible stuff that has no purpose and no reason. Evil things happen to people. We all know that's true. We've all experienced that. And yet the curse of sin is not more powerful than the faithful love of your God. The book of Ruth screams that over and over and over. God is good. Even when the world seems terrible, Even when circumstances seem to have no silver lining, God's goodness still is a fact. His love still remains. To understand this, we're going to talk about this Hebrew word. It's actually how we're going to land out today. We're going to talk about this Hebrew word that's used to kind of really define God's love. It's really one of the major themes of Ruth. It's this word has said, and and what's interesting is we haven't really talked about this the entirety of the book of Ruth. Uh, we haven't really zoned in on it much, mostly just because there's so much going on in this book, right? You have to pick some things. But we can't finish out our time studying this book without talking about this word. If, if you're unaware of this piece, English is sorely lacking in our words for love. We use the word love to mean a whole range of things. I can say with complete honesty and conviction that I love my daughter Amelia and I love pizza. And both those things are true. And that shouldn't be true, right? Like, you, you shouldn't be able to say both those, like, because there's a chasm of difference between what those two things mean, right? But in English, that's the word we got, so that's the word we use. But when you step back to the languages of the scripture, Hebrew and Greek, you find out that they were a lot more nuanced in their approaches to affection and love and care. And there's a lot of different words that end up translated in our English Bibles as love. In the Old Testament, one of the most important words for love is this Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is absolutely vital to understanding the book of Ruth. It's, but honestly though, guys, it's vital to understanding how God represents himself, specifically in the Old Testament. 
It's one of the most common word, love words, used to refer to God, used to refer to Yahweh in the entirety of the Older Testament. Is this word hesed. Other words are used, but this is the most common one. I'm going to give you one of the most famous references. This is from God's appearance to Israel on Mount Sinai. This is in Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. It says, The Lord came down in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is compassionate. The Lord is a gracious God. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. It's heavy. It's an intense sentence, right? But this is God's self-expression to the prophet Moses. He appears to Moses and proclaims, I am Yahweh. This is what I'm like. And this word he uses that we read as faithful love or steadfast love, depending on your translation, is this Hebrew word, hesed. It's often behind in your English Bibles, if you read in the Old Testament, the word kindness, the word gentleness, the word faithfulness. Oftentimes, its Hebrew root is this word has said. It's this very specific representation of love. And it's really important for us. It's the love of longevity. It's the love of commitment. Has said is the love that says, this love will remain regardless of circumstances. It's a commitment to love, not just in the moment, but love that endures Hesed is the love that we as humans commit to at the wedding altar, right? It's the kind of love that says in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, regardless of the circumstances, I make this commitment. It's the kind of love that says no matter what happens going forward, my love will not falter. It's the kind of love that keeps parents returning to care for a wayward child who's self-destructed in their life. It's the kind of love that keeps a spouse seeking after healing and redemption even after unfaithfulness. It's the kind of love that looks at relationship and says forgiveness and reconciliation are always on the table. No matter how bad it is. It's the love that God has for his children. God is a God of steadfast, faithful, committed love. Love that does not shift with the sands of circumstance. Love that does not change depending on how much you have done to earn it in the last 12 hours. Love that is not based on you. Love that is given to you. Has said is the way God loves us. With long suffering, with patience, with faithfulness, with commitment, with loyalty. Has said is behind the love that says in Romans 5, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we now have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of the Son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only that, 
but we who boast in God, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. It's sad is the love that fuels passages like Ephesians 2, for you were once dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit, now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. We were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in those trespasses, you were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that the coming age he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. It's not from works. So no one can boast. That is the kind of love that says in 2 Timothy 2, if you are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Beloved, your God loves you with a faithful love. I'm here to tell you, you cannot shake it. You can't. You can't out-sin the love that God has for you. You can't, you can't prove to him that you're not worthy of it. You can't convince him to let go of it. You can't do it. There's nothing you can do to affect the love your God has for you. By the way, that goes the opposite way. For those of you church brats who really, really want to live righteous and holy lives and make God love you better, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't move the needle on that one. God's love for you is maxed out. And it's maxed out because he is faithful and he is loyal and he cares for you, and he is steadfast. You can't shake it. You can't break it. You can't make it go away. So, wrap that back. Why Ruth? Why Ruth? Ruth is a book that shows us what said looks like in human flesh. Ruth and Boaz both are bastions of the said love of God. Ruth is faithful and committed to her love for Naomi, even when Naomi doesn't reciprocate, even when it's really painful, even when it costs her. Boaz is faithful to Ruth, even when it costs him time and money and prestige. These two are beautiful in their expression of faithful, steadfast, sacrificial love. And by the way, we should read their stories and absolutely be inspired to love well in our own circumstances. It's a beautiful and right and appropriate application of this book. But we would be absolutely remiss if we missed out on the fact that Ruth and Boaz point us forward to Jesus himself. Ruth purposely ends by moving to a genealogy and letting you know the book of Ruth is not about Ruth. It's about a larger thing God is doing. And beloved, Jesus is the better Ruth. Jesus is the better Boaz. His love is steadfast and loyal. His love endures any and all hardships. He cares for his beloved. And you are that beloved. That's you. You are the object of Christ's said love. You're the beloved. 
And that means that you can turn to him today. You can receive his love here and now. Chris, if you want to come up, I want to encourage you guys to consider this as we land out today. Regardless of where your faith journey stands right now, if you are in this room and you are considering whether or not you want to follow Christ, I encourage you to consider the faithful, steadfast love of God. It does not matter what circumstances brought you to this moment of exploration. God does not look, on, look down on you as lesser because you are still questioning, considering, doubting, and struggling. God loves you. Faithful love. I would encourage you to consider the steadfast, faithful love of Christ and the invitation that brings with it. That you can come to him exactly as you are and receive the loving kindness of God. The forgiveness, freedom of God. It is available to you. If you're in this room and you've been following Christ for years, the same has said love of God is available to you. I feel like many of us church folk can sit in a time like this and hear a sermon like this and go, man, I really hope some lost people figure out how much Jesus loves them today while we ourselves are actually living separate from the love of God. Living with calluses on our hearts. Living in such a way as though we remember, we remember fondly when we freely received the gift of God's grace. But now that we're on the inside and now that we go to church and now that we're good Christian people, we spend all our energy and effort trying to impress God and live holy lives by being good enough. That grace was free. It was an awesome ticket to get in the door. But now I'm here and now I got to show that I deserve this thing. I got I to live up to these standards and follow these perfect Christian ethics and be that good churchman or churchwoman to deserve this, beloved, that's not how it works. You can't move the needle on Christ's love for you. His love for you is steadfast. Jesus is all in on you. He's all in. He's fully committed. He's going to see this thing with you out. Paul said, I'm convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Beloved, Jesus is all in on you. It does not matter how much your faith may be in shambles today. It does not matter how many doubts you struggle with. It does not matter how many idols you run to. It does not matter how many sin patterns have their claws deep in you. It does not matter how much darkness sits over your heart day to day. The love of Christ is faithful, steadfast. He will see it through with you. He will carry you to the end. He will carry you to completion. Love it. That's how much He loves you. So we're going to take a few minutes. We're going to sing. We're going to take communion. We're going to do all the things we do on Sunday. But I want to encourage you, beloved. Whatever way you need to do that in this space right now, I want to encourage you. Do what you need to do to reconnect your heart to the love of Jesus right now. Come to Him fresh. Beloved, the well of grace is open to you. Drink deep. Be refreshed. Be revived. Be reminded that God is faithful. Even if you're faithless, He's faithful. Even if you doubt, He's faithful. Even if you struggle, He's faithful. Even if you're hurting, He's faithful. Even if your heart is in a dark place, beloved, He is faithful. Come to Him fresh. Hear the song sung over you. Find some space for you right now in this space to pray and connect with Jesus. If you can do that in your seat, that's awesome.
If you need to get on your knees somewhere, I'd encourage you to do that. If you need to grab one of our pastors or deacons to pray with you, we would love to do that. But take a few minutes. Connect with Christ. Ask Him to remind you how much He loves you. When your heart feels ready, stand back up and join us in singing and praising our good God. Amen. Beloved, do the work you need to do with Jesus.